Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith, but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. Someone might claim, you have faith and I have action. But how can I see your faith apart from your actions? Instead, I'll show you my faith by putting it into practice in faithful action. It's good that you believe that God is one. Ha! Even the demons believe this, and they tremble with fear. Are you so slow? Do you need to be shown that faith without actions has no value at all? What about Abraham, our father? Wasn't he shown to be righteous through his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? See, his faith was at work along with his actions. In fact, his faith was made completely by his faithful actions. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Author of life, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. For the past three weeks, we've spent some time looking at the many spiritual gifts that Paul mentions in his letters. We talked about the ways that we can serve as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the world. We talked about the ways that we can move people's hearts and minds to seek a deeper relationship with God. And we talked about those who are moved by the Holy Spirit to provide a unified voice and vision of God's hope for the world. Now today we will bring our spiritual gifts series to a close by thinking about what it looks like and what it means for us to put all of those different gifts in motion together as the church. Since it's also All Saints Sunday, what better way is there for us to think about what it means to be the church than by the example of God's people throughout the ages as attested to by scripture and tradition? And when we start to look at the story of God's people, we start to realize that being the church is more about who we are and what we do than it is about our buildings or what our organizations look like. If we start as the compilers of the Bible did with Genesis, we see that being God's people for them is mostly a nomadic affair. Sure, there are moments when the people settle down for a few generations, but by and large, the people are often living in the land of others and are just trying to get by. And this period is characterized by an intimate portrayal of God's relationship with a single chosen family. Eventually, Abraham's descendants wander into the land of Egypt where they reside for many generations. And while in Egypt, the descendants of Abraham become so numerous 
that the Pharaoh starts to enslave them. And this leads to another period of wandering when Moses is empowered by God to lead the people into freedom. But it's not the last time that the people of God will live in a hostile land. For a time, the people do wander in the desert, and as they do, their relationship with God changes and grows. There are periods of disobedience and the creation of new laws to turn the people back. The relationship becomes a little less intimate and a little more codified. The structure becomes a little less organic and a little more organized. The tabernacle is constructed to give God a place to dwell among the people. The ark is made to carry the tablets of the law and to give God a place from which to speak. Tables, lampstands, an altar, and a courtyard are all established. A priestly, a priestly class is created. And the people of God interact in new ways with God. Eventually, the people move into the land of Canaan. They displace the people of the land and name it after themselves. The tribes of Israel are led for a time by judges and priests. Soon enough, they clamor for a king. The tabernacle is replaced by a temple of wood and stone. And again, there are periods of disobedience and the creation of new laws to turn the people back. The kings, for the most part, do not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, and so the land begins to fill with the prophets calling the people back to the law. Occasionally, the people listen, but more often they do not. And so once again, the people find themselves without a land. Conquered and taken captive, the people of God once again find themselves trying to get by in foreign lands. It's in this period of Babylonian captivity that we see the heroes of Daniel resist the ways of the empire in order to pray to and worship and serve their God. Now eventually the people return to their land. They go back to worship the way that they had before. They rebuild the temple. They reestablish the connection between the priests and the royal family. And again, prophets rise up to return the people to the law. And among the prophets, there comes one greater than the rest, John the Baptist. John proclaims the coming of one far greater than even he, Christ Jesus, God made flesh. There is no more intimate moment in the relationship between God and the people than when God lived and breathed in human flesh. And in this time, the people of God simply existed as the church, they followed their Lord, doing the law wherever they went. But as we know, Christ eventually winds up on a cross. And even after he triumphs over death, he does not linger long with his disciples. He entrusts them to keep doing the work that they have done alongside him. And so we come to authors like James. James, who knows that our true worship is found in using the gifts that God has given us. James, who knows that faith without action is no faith at all. James, who knows that it has always been the case that to be one of God's people is to do the work that God has set in front of us. From the beginning of Abraham's story to James himself, through the centuries to those of us alive today, and into the infinite future. You see, at every step of the story, 
it was never about the particular form of worship. It was about worshiping in a way that was faithful to God. As the relationship between God and God's people changed, their mode of worship also changed. But what remained constant was the need for the people of God to remain obedient to their love of God and their love for their neighbors. No matter where the people found themselves or what their circumstances, God worked with them to find the best use of their gifts. And this pattern holds true over the last two millennia as the church has figured out how to be the church on different continents and in different languages and among different peoples. Because the reality of the church is that it is not contained in any single, single organization or in any particular mode of worship. Sure, the church must, in a temporal sense, be embodied in our various institutions and traditions. But this temporal church is merely a shadow of Christ's church transcendent. The extent to which the temporal church is the church is only the extent to which it faithfully embodies the love of Christ for the world. In other words, the church is only the church when we put our faith into action. For five weeks now, we've sung that as a fire is meant for burning, so the church is meant for mission. This is at the very core of who we are. One of the things you may have heard in the story of God's people is the pattern of disobedience followed by a turning back to God. This holds as true in the church today as it did in the time of scriptures. And writing in the 1920s, Ernest Fremont Tittle looked at a church struggling to connect with the people and offered this analysis in a sermon titled, The Foolishness of Preaching. He writes, the Protestant church is an incarnation of the prophetic type of religion. And he then continues on to describe how a lack of prophetic voices had been damaging the church before summarizing the problem by writing, there are laymen today who frankly admit that their one hope of holding their young people lies in the erection of a beautiful church edifice and the development of a beautiful service of worship. Now the religious value of Gothic architecture is in my judgment beyond dispute, as is also the religious value of a well-conducted service of worship. But Tittle is still forced to conclude, it will, I think, be nothing less than tragic if, because of an increasing dearth of prophets, the Protestant church begins more and more to subordinate the prophetic office and eventually smother it with architecture and ritual. The only way to keep prophetic religion and a prophetic church alive in the world is to go on producing prophets. And while I agree with Tittle, I think the problem is deeper than his analysis permits. For too much of the church in America, the call to grow into our gifts has been replaced by a version of the church as a consumer product. Whether it's prosperity gospels, uh, prosperity gospel preachers convincing people that Christianity and salvation are something that can literally be bought, or whether it's megachurches convincing people that the primary task of worship is to entertain the worshiper, the emphasis on mission has been lost for many of our churches. But prophecy is just one of the many gifts that we've learned about. 
And while Tittle is right that prophets are essential to a healthy church, so are those with every other gift. It is just as necessary for us to lift up those who are compassionate, generous, leaders, servants, and encouragers. It is just as important for a healthy church to have those who are knowledgeable, wise, faithful, healers, and witnesses to the miraculous. It is just as vital for there to be apostles, pastors, and evangelists. Because the work of the church, the work of God's reconciling love, is too big a job for any one of us. But when we come together as one body, united in Christ Jesus, we possess all the gifts that we need to transform the world. And you all know the truth of this. Before the old church building was finished in 1841, the church was present in Clinton through the gifts of those gathered in Christ's name. When the old church building started to show its age, the vitality of the church lived on in those gathered in Christ's name. When this building was finished, the true value of the church was found in those gathered in Christ's name. It's not any building that makes the church. It's not any style of worship that makes the church. It's all of you, united in Christ with all the saints, past, present, and future, that make the church. The church is made real in every hungry person that we feed, for anyone lonely who finds fellowship, for those in trouble to whom we can be a helping hand for anyone who encounters God in a new way through us. So we give thanks for the saints who showed us what it means to be the church. And we pray for those saints who are yet to be, that we can show them what it means to be the church. We are many, each created in unique and wonderful ways. But we are united by one spirit, in one body, for the service of our one Lord, so that all the world may be brought together in one love. Amen. Would you please pray with me? God of grace and gifts, we give thanks for all your saints. We are blessed to be part of your holy church. Make us holy. Show us how to use our gifts. Let us proclaim your justice and live out your love. God, make us better together than we could ever be on our own. Amen.